get my uh, my serious introduction voice going here. On September 22nd, 2004, Oceanic Flight 815 crashed on a seemingly uninhabited island in the South Pacific. There were 48 survivors. This is Get Lost, a podcast about those survivors and their experiences on the island. I'm your host, Jonathan Kennedy, joined by my co-hosts, Aaron Mick, and newly stranded Lost fan, Sarah Black. Welcome to episode three of Get Lost, your friendly neighborhood lost podcast. I'm Jonathan, as always, with Aaron and Sarah. Say hi, guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> and today's episode, we're uh, we're bumping up the number of episodes that we're covering. Actually, we're doing four episodes today. Uh, episodes five, six, seven, and eight. That's White Rabbit, House of the Rising Sun, The Moth, and Confidence Man, respectively. Uh, Sarah, you want to get us started with your initial thoughts? Sure. So as the resident in-house lost uh, newbie, first timer. um, So for me, it's like I, I am at the point now where I'm starting to get into it a little more, getting more like when I watch them a little bit more like actually lost in the story. Whereas in the beginning I was starting to just kind of like laugh at it. And like, it's yeah. still got its things that make me laugh, but I'm, I'm more, you're hooked. I'm more, yeah. I'm <laughs> like I'm hooked. And that's pretty um, much on schedule for how it worked in real life. Yeah. Like that picked up after the last episode for the whole season. Yeah. Like there's still times when I think it's cheesy, of course. And like, there are things that I laugh about now I find myself more like asking myself, what's this person? Where, why were they there? And I want to know this. It's <laughs> kind of, um, it's kind of funny in that way. Um, I, okay. White rabbit gives us Jack's backstory. I was okay. So this, this episode I read was the episode that made the show get picked up for nine additional episodes on top of the 13 it was originally given yeah um so obviously we're like when it aired this it was starting to ramp up this was another like really this like a very popular episode um but i was kind of meh on this episode i find jack interesting i find jack a little boring to be honest um (laughs) it's funny because he's one of the least interesting characters yeah in a a way yeah um i do so this episode was interesting because of the like we have the 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 father figure that he's chasing and this is the one where he we get his background with his dad right and he and then he finds the coffin at the end of the episode so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was cool. Like, it's nice to see him come into the leadership role and accept it. And I can see why it gets like, I can see why the episode gets good ratings. But I was sort of just happy that this plot point was behind us finally. Because <laughs> he stopped being a goddamn baby. Yeah, I was kind of waiting because I was like, okay, he's gonna be the leader. So just do it. And, and like, I like, I, I don't mind his backstory, but I do find him a little bit, like, the character of Jack a little bit tiring. So I was glad when it was finally, like, okay, he's come out of the woods, he's going to be the leader, he's ready to do that. Because his wishy-washy, like, back and forth was starting to get annoying. Um, then House of the Rising Sun, love this episode, um, gives us the background of um, giving the, I have just the actor's names, the characters, uh, uh, oh, Jin and Sun. Jin and Sun, yes. Um, 
I have down the actors' names written, and usually I have the opposite problem. I tried so hard <laughs> to remember the actors' names today. Um, but this one was cool uh, because it gives us the background on two characters that had little to no background, and they haven't been able to communicate with anybody so far. Um, and I also I read that um, Yunjin Kim and Daniel Day Kim, the two actors, were worried about how the first four five episodes had been portraying their relationship. Yeah. And as Korean. Like, yeah. yeah. As like an outdated version of what Western media portrays a Korean relationship like. So it was kind of nice to like see this background because Daniel Day Kim's character, like same as Sawyer was just so hateable. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it was nice to get uh, his background and see like a nice side of him. Um, and yeah, so that was much needed, I think, um, which they obviously figured out. Uh, and then and, uh, just, just, yeah. my, my uh, episode reminder, uh, uh-huh. how hot everyone is. Right. Yes. And so it's really, <laughs> it's really important to me that we acknowledge mm-hmm. that it was just a chance to see how hot yes. Jin and Sun are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and uh, there's there's an interview. It's like a panel interview, I think, from like Comic-Con or whatever, because they did tons of those back in like as the show was running and uh because like the the thing about like the portrayal of like korean culture and stuff was like something that always like rubbed me the wrong way as well in like those early mm-hmm. seasons but um apparently uh yunjin kim and daniel day kim both had a lot of like input on their characters mm-hmm. as they as they progressed and stuff so and like they were both you know they didn't like grow up in Korea, but they were both born in Korea. Uh-huh. And um, so they, you know, they're first generation immigrants. And yeah, so they have the, have the you know, direct experience yeah, that they exactly. can you know, help give, you know, an accurate portrayal of, you know, what Isn't Korean culture is like. Give people with the correct, uh, the correct experience the chance to <laughs> write about that experience. Well, and I also, I don't know, this is the same, it's all just from sort of like the wiki verse, but um, mm-hmm. I, and it makes sense like just for how, how people audition for films and TV, but I guess Yunjin um, Kim auditioned for as Kate. For Kate, yeah, I read right. that. Yeah. And then <sighs> like, like with, um, like with Jorge Garcia as Hurley, they, they liked her so much that they wrote this whole role a character for her yeah do you think they liked her so much they wrote a character for her or did they you think they wanted a white actress to play the lead i think both are probably true (laughs) (laughs) yeah because when i read that i was like why couldn't she have been kate like you know i i uh i appreciate kate as she is as well but i was just like "Hmm, i wonder were they ready for that? Maybe. I mean, the show is quite diverse for yeah. the time. But. but in 2004, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? She'd have to bring that up. But. Well, because, I mean, realistically, Yunjin Kim would have been a beautiful Kate. She would have been great. Well, I love seeing the portrayal of her, like, as the, like, in the before times. Yeah. And it, like, goes to that party, and she's wearing that, like, stunning backless dress. And I was she's like... She's hot! I was like, ooh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... And obviously, there's, like like, that really to me obvious juxtaposition of like uh her having to button up and cover up on the yeah. island and then they made her wear this like like slinky slinky you know like the the a lot of skin showing dress which i thought was i mean it's just sort of an obvious this was then now like now it's now or whatever 
Um, having trouble with words today. This was then, now, and now is not how to say it. <laughs> um, I think that that's fine. Um, and then uh, really quickly, the last two. So the moth. Apparently the moth got mixed reviews, but I liked this one. Um, a lot of the critiques about the moth were about how it had really heavy handed metaphors and how it was like too long. Yeah. Because the moth is like the moth and then Charlie like punches his yeah. way through the, the <laughs> trapped in. It's like the cocoon or whatever. Well, um, Lost kind of Lost kind of does that in a lot of episodes. Yeah. So like I never noticed it before, but like even in White Rabbit, like at the beginning, like mm-hmm. you know, that woman drowns in the water. Mm-hmm. You know, there's arguments over or, or, like conversations about how they're running out of water. So it's like they they always right. heavy handedly kind of set up the theme yeah. of the episode, I feel like. Yeah, exactly. There was a criticism I read that was like um, someone from the LA Times said, uh, no, was that was a uh, that was about Charlie. Sorry, there was a, a criticism I read that was about basically like how heavy handed the moth metaphor was in comparison to like end I quote the imagery that was so far subtle. I'm like, um. <laughs> like, what the two 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 players, one light, yeah, and one dark. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, where was the subtle? Where's the subtle I don't so know far. where that person. Which comes that. which comes back in in White Rabbit when they find the the two oh, bodies in the caves and yep. they find yep. the, those two stones. And that comes back later. So yeah. I love Charlie's character just in general. I love Charlie. Charlie's so lovable. Yeah, yeah, Char- my- Charlie's definitely one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Him yeah. and Hurley and Sawyer sort of are my triad of favorites by the end of everything. Charlie and Hurley's friendship is one of my favorite things. It's <laughs> yeah. so cute. And yeah. they and they work really well together. Like um, yeah. Dominic Monaghan and Jorge Garcia work beautifully together <laughs> in scenes with Charlie and Hurley. So apparently there was this writer for the LA Times, Emily Vanderwerf. To give her her credit, uh, she criticized this episode for its in, insensible drug abuse storytelling. But the episode also won a Prism Award, which are given to realistic portrayals of substance abuse. Um, I myself uh, have never been addicted to heroin and been lost, you were- <laughs> and lost on an island, so I don't know what, what is a, what isn't is not a realistic portrayal of trying to quit heroin on an island. But um, I like Charlie's character. Charlie's great. And I thought that it was like fine. It didn't come across to me as like, I'm sure there's a lot of like the rock star tropes of heroin were probably maybe not most people's yeah. experience of the drug. But um, but it won this Prism Award, which I didn't know what Prism Awards were until I found this episode. So. Yeah, now you know. Apparently an episode of Pinky and the Brain won a Prism Award for- Are you kidding um, me? For, Interesting. For writing about how like you shouldn't smoke cigarettes. And, oh. and, <laughs> and an episode of The Simpsons won a Prism Award for when um, Barney's character like finds out that his alcoholism is hurting his family. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Pinky and the Brain- I do remember Barney going said. sober. Right. For one episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And then finally, we have Confidence Man. Uh, so we get a backstory from Sawyer, which again, like the um, House of the Rising Sun episode, much needed. We needed Sawyer to become more human. And Aaron is touching yes. the sky. Um, yeah, we, we needed to see his human side because like even Kate in this episode says something along the lines of, you stole a girl's puffer who can't breathe. No one is that evil. So I'm really glad that they even acknowledged that because <laughs> yeah. that's what the viewer is thinking. Like there is no human this evil. Like why not just give 
her her puffer if you have it right exactly um so i also liked the thing about this um episode that you get to so every backstory flashback we've been given so far has been in my opinion given to us as like this is the truth this is how it happened and then sawyer's flashback is like the first one we're given where it's open to interpretation oh yeah and it's the first one well we don't think so right away we think that's how it happened until we figure out kate figures out that is that he's actually the child and then you get to sort of rewrite it in your head yeah and i thought that was cool because that we've never had something before where it's like subjective in the flashbacks yeah, totally. Uh, Sarah, yeah. do you did you recognize the man from the flashback that is oh, being yeah. conned? Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> Recently watched Gilmore Girls, and I I was like, oh my god, he's in Gilmore Girls. <laughs> he right, like, he's he he's yeah. one of my favorite characters in Gilmore Girls, <laughs> and my character? my note is literally just because I never realized it was him before. Like last night, I was watching it while I was right. TJ at work. <laughs> And my my note is just all caps fucking TJ from Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and <laughs> he, in Gilmore Girls, he like it works at Renaissance fairs. And now it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh man, good career. Uh, I we love him so much. Like, yeah, <laughs> Confidence Man is also the episode where we get the scene that I mentioned. I think last time where mm. Sawyer comes out of the uh, out of the water naked, and Kate yes. says something along the lines of, "Oh, the water must be cold with uh, without your trunks on." Right. You made it sound like I when you were like it's the most male gazy thing. I was actually expecting <laughs> a little bit more from that scene. Like I expect, <laughs> I still expect prime time television. Yeah, but no, I yes. didn't. I was expecting like a big hair flip or something, oh. like a really like, <laughs> hammy scene. I really, really hyped it up. I thought I was going to get like a Baywatch style scene <laughs> running in or something. But no, that was good. I uh, I want to point out. I want you to keep your eyes peeled for how many times in this series Josh Holloway swims in his fucking jeans. Oh, yes. I just, <laughs> I just hate this voice. I hate it so deeply. Yes. Because, first of all, you, you can tell that he's going commando. Which, what actor in their right mind is like, I'm going to be on set for 18 day, 18 hours today. Guess I'll wear no underwear in my jeans in Hawaii. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, and... Josh, if you're listening ever, what were you thinking? Tell also, <laughs> no one swims in their jeans. If no, you're on, either way you down. And he, in this episode, this is the one where, this is, no, this is not the one where he and Kate go swimming. That's Becky's Yeah, but later. it happens later. And you can, anyway, but he's swimming in his jeans and swimming in his goddamn uh, he, and he's a great swimmer. I'm like, those jeans would have weighed you down. What is <laughs> going on? So and then like somebody like Sawyer, there's no way he wouldn't just go naked too. Like yeah, yeah. With, with who he is as a character. He doesn't care. Yeah. There's just no way. Um, but anyway, that's that's a that's a continuity strange costume choice thing yeah. that I, <laughs> I cannot stand. But. Also, while well, we're talking about continuity and the swimming scene, which again, I'm skipping ahead a couple episodes, but uh, my continuity error for the week is not... Okay, it's not a continuity error per se. Like, it's not like a mistake. We need a special sound for Sarah's continuity yeah, errors. Like, yeah. a, like <laughs> yeah. some kind of... Um, but I am annoyed at how in the first episode that we're talking about today, episode five, and the woman drowns, Joanna drowns out to sea. And Boone goes to save her. Jack has a safe Boone. And then everybody else is standing on the shore watching. 
And my continuity here I'm going to bring up is like the second I saw that scene, I was like, there's no way we're going to have six seasons of them on an island and there won't be someone else who can swim really well. And I was like, <laughs> and then like a, a couple episodes after the ones we're talking about, there's a scene where both Kate and Sawyer show that they are very good swimmers. Yes. And I was like, where were they? Where were they? Where were you? And I was just, it's, it's not continuity, but it just annoys me that there's like, I guess it's not continuity. It's, it it's a bit of a plot theory. hole. It just yeah. annoys me in theory with like, if I was on the island, I'd be like, yeah, it didn't go help. Like where were you? <laughs> anyway. Um, so not as much, I don't have as much of a continuity era as much as that just annoyed me to watch. Um, Cause as soon as I watched that episode yesterday and them swimming, I was like, knew it. Knew someone else. Could swim. <laughs> um, and okay. Last thing uh, for me as a first impression, um, uh okay i said i wrote down no shade to watership down but it is funny to me that boone is reading it because it's primarily a children's novel this is the novel (laughs) that boone brought on the plane and then sawyer's reading it and the reason that boone thinks sawyer has the asthma medicine is because the book was in the same suitcase Yeah. yeah 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 so um like it's primarily for children and it's I, apparently the book was chosen because it has lots of metaphors of like building a new society and beginning yeah. again. And like, there's a, no shade to watership down. I read it as a kid and liked it, but I do think it's more apt in associating Boone with being a little bit of a childish character. Yes. And he is. Oh, he's, Boone is such a... he's like a, he's like a poodle of characters. He's a big goofy poodle. I have a, I have one of my notes here for is just, saying that Boone is such a wiener when he you know is like confronting Jack he's like I run a business yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like yes. Boone fuck off the, the, that reminds me actually I, I wanted to bring this up last episode one of my absolute favorite lines in maybe the entire series but definitely in this season is when they're like fighting over the gun while they're on the hike <laughs> and um Shannon's like he doesn't know how to use a gun. He goes on marches. Yeah, right. He goes on marches. Yes, and there's something coming up soon. I, again, I'm doing that thing where I confuse my episodes, but there's something coming up soon where uh, Shannon is like, "He's a liberal." <laughs> she says, oh, yeah. "Not liberal." She's it's so just, funny. it's just funny because Boone is constantly just like a little bit can't see the forest for the trees like he's like, like he's always a, well he's a spoiled little brat he's, and he's, he's trying yeah. to hard. but he yeah. he want i think like boone's natural state is to be a sweetheart mm. but he's such a spoiled rich brat yeah yeah and he wants people to take him seriously like it's it's right. all just his insecurity that yeah <laughs> which uh, as we all know just in life like if you try too hard it's just gonna make you look even like, more like he's just he's like trying to save joanna and then he tries to do this and he tries you know yeah. tries to go up on the hike with the signal and he what whatever he's just always being like i can be helpful i can be helpful and then he's constantly making fun of shannon for being unhelpful because yeah. obviously that's all, another insecurity exactly. that he has so it's just like it's just funny to me that he, he brought watership down on the plane. i know i don't know well, <laughs> well, this, is, this is another interesting thing about these the as you get further away from mm-hmm. the pilot and further into the story, yeah. you get sort of like a two-for-one deal on background stories mm-hmm. as the characters build their relationships. So yes, right. like these episodes focus on sort of core characters, but you also do learn more mm-hmm. thusly about Boone and Shannon, right. who are in a way kind of mysteries to us because they're just presented as these like annoying rich brats. Mm-hmm. But you find out like Shannon grew up with asthma Mm-hmm. So there's no way that she doesn't like what a peculiar affectation to give to a character like Shannon. And like bad asthma. 
Yeah, like really bad. Like she's starting to like struggle to breathe in this episode. It's not just like a light whatever. Yeah, and then and then you find out, you know, Sun Sun has some skills for like on the fly medicine. Like, why does she know that eucalyptus will open? Like, yes, she should be like she's like kind of a botanist as yeah. things go on. Like she's tending to all these. Like she and yeah. she had the aloe she has and her, another her one. Little garden. I don't know yeah. if she has her garden yet, but she's starting to. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. By the end of it, you will... also find out this is a very important plot mm-hmm. point that Sun speaks English. Yes, we we did find that out. Uh, yes. What were your feelings on that? So I feel like that was a big uh, like that was a big moment in like the. Mm-hmm. The early days of the show is like, holy shit, Sun speaks English. What's going right. on? Right. And and I can't remember, like, so my initial reaction was sort of just, like, relief. And I think, like, <laughs> I read that some people as well were a bit relieved because now it, like, gets rid of this barrier of, like, them having to be constant, them being Jin and Sun having to be constantly like not able to communicate and you're kind of like oh my god these people are going to be stuck on this island and not know and then you get this like kind of relief that, like there is there there is a connection there like she yeah. could translate if she wanted to she wanted to. um and it gave and that interesting backstory of like how he became such a monster in her life it was like interesting to see that side of her that like secretly learned english and was going to run away which gives more strength to her character too because you're sort of like, wow, you were really brave and you were about to do this thing. And then um, at the last minute, of course, she got on the fateful flight. Yeah. Oceanic <laughs> yeah. 15. Well, and there's something really, um, there's, there's two, there's two sides to this whole sun knowing English thing. Part, my, part of my gut reaction is like, nah, fuck that. We shouldn't be like valorizing English as the way out of every bad situation. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Like it's not the naturally better language. It's not right. yada, yada, yada. But I also am really inclined to read into it as a statement on like the importance of speaking and communication for having power and having a survival. Right. Um, I. It's something she had over him. Yeah. Sort of. Like yeah. sort of a way of, um, of get, like an actual tool. Language is an actual tool. And I think that that's a theme that, uh, runs through all of Lost in various and sundry ways. Like there's, um, oh, I don't want to give too much away because I don't think we're there yet, but there's um, there's a really important character that um, Locke and a couple other people frequently will later demand to speak to, mm. who is kind of an unseen um, element for a lot of it. And this idea that like in order to have any control you need to speak to somebody right. i think is very important in this show right and right. so this is a big moment for sun and it's a big moment for the plot mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and there is like the miscommunication about the watch because yeah. michael has the watch on yeah and jin tries flips to out obviously beat him up and then and then eventually when sun is able to communicate this this is the reason it's my father's watch. Um, Michael's like, time isn't valuable anyway. Or when he go throws a watch back at him. <laughs> yeah. We're on an island. Who cares? They're like, is this all you wanted? Um, so it's, it's kind of funny too. I like the, the uh, blossoming friendship slash whatever the relationship is between Michael and son. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think it's kind of nice. I, I love the episode where, where he's like, I'm, going to go now yes, and it, yeah. <laughs> when he it's when so he like r- runs into the jungle and she's yes. there like changing or whatever yeah, yeah. And, and then 
And I also love when she he's trying to get her to babysit. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I said, okay. Well, okay exactly. Yeah. And I, what's funny is like, now you know that son the whole time was probably just like, yeah, okay, yeah. I got it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's... Uh, Michael's yeah. a very charming character. I Yes, me, uh, I believe so as well. And, and son is the character of son is a good actor oh yeah because she's really good <laughs> double life it, it, actually just, imagine that as an as a an as a act. choice like when you're yeah. on set like yeah because okay, she I helped write to... the character too I exactly suppose. yeah um you have to you do speak english but you have to well i mean i guess they're doing that all the time anyway because like daniel day kim and young jin kim obviously are both like a full american citizen apparently daniel day kim's korean accent sounded bad yeah because he like doesn't speak korean yeah he he moved to he moved to the u.s when he was one like he Mm -hmm. didn't even learn to speak while he was in korea like at least jin kim like moved when she was like seven i think right so she would have you know learned to speak yeah in korea i have a suggestion for the title of this episode of our podcast what is sure. it? It's full of bees. Full of bees. Um, <laughs> so when Kate says that her shirt was full of bees, and then when they step on the beehive and run away, yeah, she's right, right, right. Oh my god! And she's like, "My shirt was full of bees." And then Charlie says, "I could have sworn they were seas." I was like, oh, <laughs> "Oh no!" I was like, "Charlie, you idiot!" Because number one, it's ridiculous. Because why would you say that? And number two, number she two, has a size breast. No, I was gonna say number two. <laughs> they're obviously not a seagull like i hate to like i'm so sorry evangeline really like uh, like talk about your body in this way but the joke was just like in poor taste and also, and also wildly inaccurate <laughs> yeah, it's like, just like she's a she's a tiny very thin person yeah she's not walking around with sea yeah anyway again, not sorry evangeline I know, if you to, ever for some reason ran across this i know but like to me i was just like okay well obviously i guess when they write that joke he has he can't be like i could have sworn they were a's because there's some sort of weird societal hang-up that like smaller is right worse. so you can't even so they were trying to hold better and it's this just is coming dumb, from two so. quite flat-chested women yes it's, it's a real laugh I was allowed to have this. Yeah, so it's just like it to me. It was just like so dumb. I, I was like, this. It's a bad joke that. And it would have changed make, the it, reaction too. Like, what would Kate do if he right said? <laughs> and it's where they were only double A's. Yeah, like yeah, like <laughs> I don't know. Like to so it was just like full of bees. Can we please call the episode full, full of bees? bees. <laughs> oh my! Oh, apparently it was real bees all over him, and they had they had to get these um bees that don't have stingers or like a certain type of bee whatever it's like this male drone bee that doesn't have a stinger and um they covered uh, what's his name Do- uh, dominic monahan dominic uh, in honey and then the bees were actually all over him when he was filming. yeah there's there's um, a thing on the dvd that. special features about that i meant to rewatch and make notes about it but yeah. I watched and it a couple then, of weeks ago and, and they, they, they did add CGI bees as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there were the actual real bees. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that wild? That is kind of wild. I want bees. I want sting. sting you want to do bees a, all a over scene me. with bees. <laughs> I, wanna, I, I wonder if that's what they also did for like Candyman, the, the original movie. Yeah, probably. Because there are scenes where those are definitely real bees. Like oh yeah, like they well in like Candyman was what Candyman? made in like ninety ninety one. So like yeah. you know CGI was not up it's to par. Limited. Um, yeah, so they definitely it would have been I would imagine practical in Candyman. 
I'm just wow. thinking of the like Hollywood apiary that's yeah. just full of <laughs> drone bees. Somewhere, somewhere on a back lot, there's a there's a whole dedicated team of bee breeders. They're, yeah, they're just making <laughs> male drones. Um, okay, one more thing I want to talk about, and then I promise I'll stop dominating the floor. No, I love it when you dominate. We need to talk about hey now, everybody. <laughs> okay, I I can hear that. You answer. are everybody. <laughs> Yeah, apparently, yeah, yeah, sorry, but uh, yeah, apparently, this, this is funny. Just so such uh, a dumb lyric that I didn't even remember. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, go ahead, Jonathan. I, apparently the lyrics for that song came from an episode of the Phil Donahue yes. show. Yes, and I saw there was, this. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. And it became like an inside joke in the writer's room. So when they had to like write the lyrics to it, they just used that. Yeah. And then they brought in like songwriters just to like write and explicitly because there's a, a behind the scenes like segment on the DVDs for this as well. And like they specifically brought in like some songwriters to write a really generic like mediocre pop rock song which yeah. apparently I, I i didn't compare it but like uh apparently it's very similar to rock and roll star by oasis which right. would fit because charlie and his brother are clearly based on the gallaghers and his brother's name is liam like they didn't even change the name <laughs> oh, I, I didn't even realize that fuck and also can we yeah. can we uh-huh. Can we also talk about Charlie's rock star look? Yes, we oh must. Like his sleeveless shirt with like the half cop, half pop collar, the scarf, like those red the highlights. Scarf. It's so good. I and hate the, it so much. Yeah, it's I know. yeah, it's so good. Bad. It's, it's like, so good. Bad. Uh, <laughs> and the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a bunch of bracelets, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, definitely. Nail polish. Well, like, he yeah, he always is rocking the black nail polish. Yep. Um, <laughs> Yes, amazing, and I, also, I will not have you people disparaging nail polish in my no, presence. No, no, no. We, we, <laughs> there, we listen, what you don't know is that I love a man of nail polish. There's no disparaging here; only yeah. admiration. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, nail polish for everybody who wants it, but uh, it's <laughs> nail just, polish for all. <laughs> nail polish for all. But, uh, but his, my, my political, uh, my political platform. Yes, nail, nail polish for all. I agree. I would vote for that. But I do think in 2004, it was like supposed to be this like rock. Like it was it's just like, like this, alt boy. Oh, yeah. And it was yeah, like, yeah, it uh, was very edgy. It was very Derek Wibley is what he looks like to me. Some 41. <laughs> <laughs> I like, also <laughs> think it's interesting that they chose Dominic Monaghan for this role because I love Dominic Monaghan and I think he's a brilliant actor and I think he brings a lot to Charlie that's gorgeous and perfect for it but in a way he doesn't look like a rock star he doesn't have a like he doesn't have any edge to him he's like a very soft kind of persona yeah Yeah. i mean he is the bass player Uh, that's true (laughs) as a a bass player i uh (laughs) also my fiance is a bass player so (laughs) and we are all non (laughs) we are all very non-threatening soft people yes so i I am on the cover of non-threatening boys magazine in an episode (laughs) of the simpsons that's true you are yeah um fans can google that and and I, i i will put it in the show notes Yes, yeah, please do. Um, <laughs> apparently, they also asked Dominic Monaghan to write 
a song before they settled on you all, everybody. And he wrote a song called Photos and Plants and they were going to use it. And then right at the end, they were just like, nah, we're going to use our inside <laughs> joke. <laughs> and like, went to all this trouble. trouble. And you know he agonized over it too. Probably. Like, <laughs> I can find, I didn't try, but I want to see if I can find a recording of Photos and Plants. Like, photos and Plants. I, but you he, all, everybody is like, oh man, that's so funny. Oh. And in the first, second episode, whatever it is, where he's like, I'm in drive shaft, you know, you all, everybody, and Kate recognizes it. Yeah. And she's like, oh, yeah. Um, apparently, they didn't give him any direction on, like, how to sing that. That's right. And I so that. he had to just, like, improvise. So he just yeah. was like, you all, everybody. And then, like, they had to make the song have that in <laughs> And he established that he, and yes. doomed the song. So it was like based off his just like improvisation of the line. And he and apparently he said he was channeling how Prince sings. Like he was trying yeah. to sing <laughs> like in higher register, but like <laughs> doesn't remind me of a Prince song. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> anyway, you all, everybody. Well, that's hilarious. I'm happy to say that they 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 never drop it like it does in all seasons you all everybody comes up at some point it's it's a running thing and it's terrible and great at the same time i'm glad it's bad well there's something really funny about these characters that are almost like caricatures of because it's like every stereotype they could possibly find for rock stars they they hucked into these two characters charlie and liam (laughs) and i it's an example of like last week or whenever we did that other episode Let's just say last week because that's a nice way to keep, make it seem, seem like we're like consistent. We're consistent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, last week when we were on our other episode, we were talking about how this difference between cheesy and campy, mm-hmm. and that is an argument that will never be settled. However, I will say there is something deeply cheesy uh-huh. and camp about Liam and that's what I mean. Characters. It has both. Yeah, it, it has, has both. both. It has both. It has both. <laughs> and I think it's a case of like. It almost does seem totally intentional here. And I'm now wondering if you mentioned how the flashbacks seem like they're just factually presented for the most part, mm-hmm. except for when we maybe this glimpse of Sawyer. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of wondering if maybe they weren't all written almost with a subjective right. uh, tone in mind. And, like- and this is more like how Charlie remembers mm-hmm. it than how it actually is. Yeah, like, probably. Um, because honestly, who would, like, there's certain things where I think like, who would choose that actually? Who right. actually is like this? And right. the answer is hardly anyone. So that only leaves room for saying like, maybe this is how Charlie is like remembering it. And you mean who is like Devin is in his brother? Yeah, his yeah. brother and him, and himself and their life together. And sort of this, this idea that like some barely popular band has a shit ton of groupies who are just like willing to have right orgies yeah. in their loft like i just doesn't like, seem real to me father we're getting really big in manchester and the, like, <laughs> the when, w- one i really like that charlie's a good catholic boy i think that's uh, a nice <laughs> <Yes>. touch <laughs> funny uh, for oh. manchester as well like that he's catholic and i just like, see, like britain i don't know what like okay. well, yeah. also when he when he's in confession and says that they're getting a lot of heat uh right. Since I'm since I'm a wrestling fan, like in 
in wrestling heat means like bad attention so it threw me off for a second i was like wait they're getting like what good heat i realized that means they're like you know getting hot they're (laughs) very popular yeah Yeah, i didn't know that i was my wrestling nerd uh tendencies kind of threw me off on that one that's i would have thought that too initially like i because when you say like you're in hot water like you're getting a lot of heat from the press means like yeah good yeah yeah exactly wonder if this is a british thing British viewers, weigh in. Weigh in. <laughs> Listeners. <laughs> well, and so That's then right. I think that uh, I'm obsessed with themes, as we all know. So I think um, another last last time I was all obsessive about like Greek um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, thematics mm-hmm. Uh, and imagery. And this week I'm like, well, obviously this is a show about memory and memories and sure, how we remember yeah. things yeah. and people and um, how and it's obviously about like time because flashbacks always are about time but Mm -hmm. but specifically i think lost is making some kind of philosophical claim about memory potentially Mm -hmm. and And about how subjective it is yeah yeah um and that'll come back later but yeah no for sure because now that we've seen sawyer's flashback that isn't exactly how it played out like he is in the position of a different character of the story he's in his uh whatever that he's the child and whatever anyway we know what happened um uh then it makes the viewer sort of think, oh, well, what other ones were like this? Were? Exactly. So then you can go backwards and be like, yeah, was uh, Charlie, Charlie is obviously skewed towards him too. Like maybe his brother, yeah, didn't have like seven girls lying right. around, the, you know, like <laughs> maybe it was one girl once or something like yeah. it could, whatever it is, but for sure, definitely, um, like memory being subjective comes back yeah. to and flawed and deeply and and sometimes confusing or sometimes cheesy like even we can go back to the freaking freaking angel hair pasta thing like if that's how jack remembers <laughs> probably it, more like spaghetti <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. no but like people sure. I, I think people do have, have a complicated relationship with their memories absolutely yeah. um and i think lost is going to play with that a lot Sarah, I have a, a question that just popped into my head mm-hmm. as you guys were talking then. And it, ha- it has to do with Charlie's recollection of like when Liam sings the chorus right. instead of him. Like right. you and I have both played in bands, uh-huh. obviously not to the level of drive shaft, but right. like, <laughs> I like Charlie's reaction to that just seems so... Uh, ridiculous to me yeah. like like it's not a big deal if you know someone your else bandmate jumped. accidentally steals the spotlight in one performance you know <laughs> right. like like, <laughs> like i feel like that shouldn't ruin your entire band no and i all it's more indicative to me of a sibling rivalry yeah because, yeah 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 you know because siblings are the unique like or family, I should say, and it just in general, whoever fills that role in your life has this unique position of being able to get under your skin like no one else. Yes. Um, and there's so, actually yeah. there's actually in I'm pretty sure it's in I don't think it's in this episode, but there's another Charlie flashback at some point in the I guess not too distant future where um, he's having a memory of Christmas and he. I think Charlie gets a piano that year and Liam doesn't get anything really, or it might be the other way around. I can't remember, mm-hmm. but there's, there's definitely like that dichotomy between them set up at right. some point. For sure. And it's all, like, to me, yeah. The thing you mentioned about the band, like 
Yeah, for sure. Not a big deal if someone else sings it. I can't remember, but does Liam, like, does his brother play an instrument in the band or is he a vo- just I've- a vocalist? Oh, I can't I remember can't either. I almost want to say he plays guitar, but I really don't remember. Because especially if he's, I, I don't remember. And I don't, I am currently, quote unquote, just a vocalist in a, in a band. So I'm well, not saying that just <laughs> is a bad word for it. But like, if he is solely a vocalist, then let him sing let the him chorus. Sing his chorus. <laughs> like, it's just like, that's his only thing he has to do. Anyway, I don't know if he, maybe he is a guitarist as well. I wouldn't be surprised if they were doing the uh, Oasis parable. Um, I mean, that that is what they're doing. I mean, I feel like it's pretty obvious, but yeah. And um, apparently, uh, Oasis's first album also was only like locally successful, and then it wasn't until they had yeah. a wonder that they got big. So, you all, everybody, this is a wonder wall. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds more like their their other song, but um, also, Liam... I wouldn't say uh, I wouldn't say they were a one hit wonder. I mean, Champagne Supernova was fucking huge too. I wouldn't say they were either, but I guess the idea of like they didn't they didn't get anything till they had the hit uh, idea yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, like Oasis is just a, it's a whole funny thing in and of itself. Like <laughs> like Charlie's from Manchester as well. It's like not even a metaphor. It's just like a full on copy, <laughs> copy of them. Like and they should probably be paying likeness rights. I'm sure that I had to look up the actor one of the Gallagher's Liam, and he's American. His name's Neil Edward Hopkins. I'm looking now too. Um, had a pretty good career. Well, yeah, detour, right on. Nip Tuck, My Name is Earl, Skyline, Losing Control, True Blood, Grim, Bones. Wow. Anyways. Um, nice nice work, Neil. <laughs> Liam <laughs> lost instrument. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to find, that's what I was looking for initially, and then I got distracted by reading his filmography. <laughs> like, um, while we're recording. I keep getting Liam Gallagher. So it's like, you can't even <laughs> Google this character without getting the person he was based off of. Yeah, you all, everybody my new song for my wedding okay i've i i found i just did a google image search for drive okay. shaft lost and uh-huh. there is a picture of charlie playing bass and singing and liam just singing right and maybe then I had holding this, a tambourine or something i had this I memory tell. that maybe he drive shaft okay when you everybody. google you all everybody it, the results come up as if it's a real album that was actually released in yes. 1999. <laughs> That's hilarious. That. that is very, very funny. Uh, so yeah, like, especially if he doesn't have an instrument to play, let him sing the song. <laughs> like, Jonathan, tell us about, I know there's a couple themes you want to talk about this week that aren't yeah. just trivia facts about drive. Let, let's read, let's have some host notes. All right. Let's, let's get real fucking nerdy here. Okay. Um, I'm ready. um probably the easiest one the most digestible thing to dive into would be uh jack's jack's whole live together die alone speech which is becomes like a fairly important theme and kind of ethos for the show i think Mm -hmm. um in addition to being you know a pretty good uh socialist message um (laughs) but um it it made me think of like the whole Lord of the Flies aspect that we touched on in the first episode, I believe it was. Yeah. And um, I wanted to, there's, there was an incident in the sixties where some kids actually cr- like 
got stranded on an island for 15 months. And yeah, it's it's crazy for my literary timeline. lack of knowledge is before or after Lord of the Flies was written. I'm pretty sure it's after Lord of the Flies. I'm looking. Aaron's checking. Yeah, it was 54 that okay. Lord of the Flies came out. And um, okay. the, the yeah, there's um, an author who wrote a book about this incident, uh, Rutger Bregman. And like he starts talking, start, there's um, an excerpt that I'll post in the show notes uh, that The Guardian published back in May of this year, actually. Um, so it's fairly recent. I, th- I guess the book came out recently. Um, and he like starts talking about, um, how he read Lord of the Flies as a kid and, you know, kind of, uh, it always didn't, it never really sat well for him. And he, in researching his book, he found out that, uh, one, William Golding, the author of Lord of the Flies, was just a piece of shit. And oh, man. Uh, he, he, he quotes him. He quotes him as, as having said, like, I've always understood the Nazis because I'm that sort by nature. And yeah, um, so it's, you know, obviously yeah, he has a very you know pessimistic uh, worldview. But these uh, these kids crash landed. Uh, they like they were unhappy with like the school lunch that they were provided. I think this was in um, somewhere in the South Pacific. I can't remember off the top of my head and I don't have it in the notes. It's okay. But, I'm gonna uh, look they, they decided to go, uh, go fishing and they stole this like local fisherman that they didn't like. They stole his boat and went out to go fishing for their school lunch break. And okay. uh, yeah, they get stranded. And then the captain who eventually, came across the island where they were still living um wrote his memoir wrote a memoir about uh or wrote about it in his memoir i guess and uh it says uh, by the time we arrived the boys had set up a small commune with a food garden hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater a gymnasium with curious weights a badminton court chicken pens and a permanent fire all from handiwork an old knife blade and much determination uh while the bo- while the boys in lord of the flies come to blows over the fire those in this real life version tended their flame so it never went out for more than a year the kids agreed to work in teams of two drying up a strict raw for garden kitchen and guard duty sometimes they quarreled but whenever that happened they solved it by imposing a timeout their days began and ended with song and prayer uh colo fashioned a makeshift guitar from a piece of driftwood half a coconut shell and six steel wires salvaged from their wreckage boat um an instrument peter had kept all these years and played it to help lift their spirits uh can i interject with something jonathan yeah yeah go ahead um apparently According to an article from May of this year, um, Rucker Brigman and the survivors of this incident are collaborating together and deciding who they're going to give film rights to for an adaptation of the story. Yeah, that, oh. they talk about that a little bit in this uh, in the thing uh, from the Guardian as well. Um, well and the, and these yeah, men are still alive. Like the four, four of yeah. them are still. Alive and the captain who rescued them yeah so it's really like you know um there's there's this whole tendency 
for, you know, very pessimistic views of humanity, uh, you know, the whole social Darwinism thing. And, but, and, and the real John Locke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but like, much like Jack's uh, little speech, you know, mm-hmm. humanity is, you know, by nature, you know, insofar as human nature is a is an innate thing you know we were you know a social cooperative kind of species you know that's how we evolved mm-hmm. um you know Dar- like most darwinian theory actually you know is about more cooperation than survival of the fittest as it's commonly um, yeah. so i thought that was uh, a really interesting that's cool it's super interesting. aside and it's important too because i think we even see this on a smaller scale in times of like weather crisis Mm -hmm. like you'll see yeah um, absolutely yeah i remember i remember when when hurricane katrina happened seeing footage on the and i mean i was pretty young still but seeing footage on the news of people you know standing on their roofs Mm -hmm. as the water rushed around their homes and they were just scrambling to grab anyone they could see floating by or Mm -hmm getting onto floating objects and boats to try to go around and rescue people. And there was no concern for any of the things that usually divide people like race and class and Mm -hmm. things like this. And obviously certain parts of, obviously certain parts of the area were better off because they were more affluent and had more access to Mm -hmm. and help from um, like government resources. But the people themselves who were in the midst of the tragedy Mm -hmm. obviously were only cooperative um, yeah, yeah. Like crisis brings that out in people more yeah, than exactly. we often mm-hmm. than we often acknowledge, and we it's really mm-hmm. yeah. Like the entire like selfish gene argument and that thing just always has always really bugged me. And this is just such a great illustration of you know what how actually, yeah. our our you know our a lot of our ideas are you know shaped by not only like the you know culture that we grow up in or whatever but you know the way society's already constructed you know we believe those things because you know mm-hmm. that's how capitalism is structured uh and then you know that produces literature mm-hmm. like lord of the flies that reinforces that and, and it's a then whole it's in the school curriculum and everybody has yeah. to read yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and people think, yeah, we learned we learned that you know in high school. Obviously, it must be, you know, that must be what right. what humanity is all about because that's why we read it. My takeaway as a child was just that's what men would do, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> which is like a whole other thing, right? Yeah, like, and I'm not saying that's good nor bad, like well, it's bad, but but like uh, also even like yeah. even like that construction of like masculinity, you know, yeah. comes out of that, that you know the, the social structures that we're raised in and. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And it's funny too because oh, I was thinking, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to make this too prescient and like away from the lost topic, but I think that this is relevant. No, no, go ahead. I was thinking about the um the strange ideology. I don't like misusing that word. The strange um ideological type views of anti-maskers. For right now, yeah. during the- and it's pecu- it's interesting what you're saying about this um, this tendency towards community mindedness because I think that the narrative in <laughs> I I will very sarcastically say in reasonable circles, i.e., people who do wear <laughs> masks because they mm-hmm. um, 
there's this notion that anti-maskers are only selfish, bad people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's um, actually a more harmful narrative in a way, because all the rhetoric I've been seeing from anti-maskers online is actually still community minded. It's like, yeah. no, you don't understand. You're falling into a trap. Don't be like that. Be right. strong against the government, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like yeah. it still is rooted in this actual, like a, a sort of a twisted and um, <laughs> bizarre, but still a concern for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was having I was having this conversation with my mom recently, actually, and um, I was yeah, I was talking I was telling her about um, there's this book that was published. It was a study of how authoritarianism and fascism kind of arise. Um, It was written in the it was published in like the early 50s by uh, Theodore Adorno, um, Elsa Frankel Brunswick, Daniel Levinson and uh, Nevitt Samford who are all uh, you know, Jewish-German uh, scholars who escaped the Nazis and came yeah. to the United States. And, yeah. Well, Adorno is now really famous in the humanities, like a, yeah, a very yeah. famous yeah. scholar. Yeah, he's a, you know, a big influence on my personal you know, theoretical development. Um, yeah. But they, they did this study um, about the rise, like the kind of, characteristics that underpin the rise of fascism um and yeah this was written in the 50s and like uh yeah it was a very it was a study it's not just you know a piece of theory it's you know um, an empirical study that they did and i i came back to this because there's a, a video essay on youtube that i watched a little while ago that kind of just summarizes the the points of the book. Uh, I'll post it in the show notes because it's worth watching. But it was honestly kind of wild how much the that stuff lined up with what I've seen from anti-maskers and like their connections to like yellow vesters and the various other like far right groups that kind of circle each other in in that in that thing. Um, you know, they talk about. Uh, you know, parents in childhood, they talk about like views of sexuality, views of religion, like they, they cover a whole, whole range of stuff. That's super interesting. I, I don't have the preparation to really go into, oh, okay. but uh, it's go into it next like I said, I'll, po- I'll, I'll post the, uh, I'll post the thing in the, in the show notes for the video essay. It covers it really well, but yeah, it's, you know, just kind of a, well, and the thing a cyclical is, I mean, thing I- that keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. And I think what people don't, and this is something that we, this is something that gets discussed at entry level university in entry level university classes in terms of like political philosophy, um, history, historiography is this idea, like keep in mind that evil, what we refer to and label as evil behavior wouldn't work and wouldn't happen if it wasn't in some way compelling and convincing. Yeah. So trying to sort of like huck, huck, um, these problematic worldviews that sometimes turn into full blown genocide and tragedy into a category is just like inhuman and, and horrible. And that these people are just like naturally evil and bad Mm -hmm. actually is counterproductive for understanding how it happens. Yeah, absolutely. And so one thing, that if we if we can try to somehow wrangle this back to talking about loss, <laughs> I think maybe why it's important that we're talking about um, how lost and this Bregman book 
um, and the real life incident is is different from how Lord of the Flies plays out is because Lord of the Flies posits a world in which evil looks really evil and bad, which yeah. is not really the case. It's 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 often very subtle and very convincing and compelling. Mm-hmm. And people do bad things because they think that they're the right thing to do, not because they just want to yeah. be shitty. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, which is maybe not a very, is a more nuanced reality than what something like Lord of the Flies presents. I don't think, yeah, I don't think Lord of the Flies had nuance. Not necessarily. <laughs> maybe it did. I mean, maybe I haven't read it since I was what, a teenager. So I don't know. Maybe it's a better book that I'm giving it credit for. But it's I don't think so. I directed, don't think it is. <laughs> well, and it's also like directed towards a young audience, which yeah. nuance doesn't do well in. Not necessarily. Like, like, yeah, for the most part, like if you're. You should, we should endeavor to provide nuance for our young adult readers, but that doesn't always happen. Right. And, and, and depending on how young you're going, like like a uh, cognitive ability to detect nuance isn't there yet. Like maybe not like maybe younger than Lord of the flies, yeah. but like just in general, I'm going into children's entertainment. Well, I've been reading yeah. a lot about, been about that. I've been reading a lot about it and then about how like, like, especially cause kids go through these stages so rapidly. Like, yeah. Uh, like there are just different years where they're finally able to understand, like, for example, like, this this year they're able to identify like when really young like say three to five they're able to identify that like a television ad is different than the actual program they're watching right. but they're not able to distinguish like well actually three they can't distinguish that it's different at all and then by the time you know they get to a stage where they can distinguish it's different but they don't really know that like an ad is necessarily selling something to them right then they get to a stage where they know it's selling something to them but they're not able to like remove themselves from the um the idea that the ad wasn't created specifically with them in mind. And then like, you know what I mean? So it like goes up and up and up and, and, and that's all before they're like age 10 or whatever. So it just depends on how young you read um, a book. You might need nuance. Yeah. Right. Um, But I do think Lord of the Flies was probably written for what pre-teens, early teens, like that kind of like to teens. Yeah. Like young, somewhere between like 12 and and 16. boys, it seems. Yeah. Now uh, here's the interesting thing is that I actually remember really loving that book when I read it in high school. Yeah, I don't but, remember hating it. But I think that's because it has certain elements that I was drawn to already that would later lead me in the direction of like a horror a type right. of well, fandom. Well, I remember it being kind of scary. It's kind of scary. Yeah, People yeah. are violent. And I think mm-hmm. I think um, kids recognize and cope with different forms of like people overuse this word, but trauma, sort of mm-hmm. broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. And so I think not that I had a really, a really amazing childhood and I don't have any like distinct traumas that were, that I can claim for my, myself. But I think, um, kids pick up on stuff like social status. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in sort of a marginalized neighborhood. I grew up in a trailer park, which are obviously isn't very, um, well characterized in the media. Yeah. And so I think I might've been, when I read Lord of the Flies, I might've been already detecting this sort of like yeah. class system that we all live in that's yeah. based on different things like where you live, the type of neighborhood you live in, what you look who your like. parents are, what you look like, like, what clothes you wear. In the book, Piggy gets picked exactly. on just because he's fat and he seems Piggy. Like, it's just so- exactly. It's so silly. Yeah. And so like I think maybe where I was feeling like vaguely probably under attack for certain elements of my life, um, this was 
Lord of the Flies came to me as a way of like fictionalizing that in an mm-hmm. extreme and for Situation. me aesthetically pleasing way. Right. Um, but Stephanie, Steph- you're such a strange child. I'm a, I was a very strange <laughs> child. Steph- <laughs> the cover of the book is like a pig's head ripped off. Yeah, and I know. <laughs> and I, I mean, this, like, I've it is very aesthetically pleasing. It is, and I've been drawn to these like sort of fictionally violent aesthetics my whole life. Right. And I don't know how to explain that. I don't think that you probably ever could right um explain what why certain individuals are i mean there's entire yes. philosophies on that sure right? and i actually don't think it's as strange as i am it's probably no, no, you but it is be. funny it's to funny be, like there's a funny to be like to i was 13 and i love violence like yeah. who does that well i mean yeah. my, my, my favorite movie when i was 13 was kids i mean oh my gosh <laughs> i have oh not seen yeah no I, my favorite movie when i was eight was terminator 2 so that's so cute <laughs> well, so, I think, and- so i was a fucked up weird kid too Right. And so I think there's things about Lord of the Flies that were appealing to me, but not thematically. I don't think I would have been thinking about it thematically. No. And yeah. Whereas now I see the sort of undercurrent ideology of something like Lord of the Flies and I'm like, ugh. Right. And it's, it's too bad that the two were together, right? Like there's parts of the book that you liked. Exactly. It's kind of like Um, enjoying Harry Potter and having to watch J.K. Rowling act in the world Watch her entire, (laughs) her entire her entire um, pedestalization in my head go up in flames because, like, well, yeah, well, it's good <laughs> it's though. We have to, we have to uh, get rid of our heroes. Kill yeah, your kill, idols, kill, you know. Kill your idols. Yeah, get rid. Another phrase today that I forgot yeah. the words for. Get rid of your heroes. Get rid of your. <laughs> what I meant. Throw them, throw them in the pit. Throw your heroes away. Into I wrote a long, I wrote a long Facebook post about that that I don't. Kill, we, can, we can link in the show notes. <laughs> kill, kill your idols is important, though. I think it yeah. is. And so, anyway, to to pull this all back somehow, to somehow segue if back. If there's to the one show, show you can segue back to, it's Lost. It's Lost because yeah. it's everything. Yeah. So the point is, Lost, mm-hmm. I think, does try in a way, in its way, to demonstrate that good people can do evil shit, mm-hmm. like, um, yes. and evil people can do good shit. Yeah. And how that becomes confusing, and why that plays out. Um, in a way more nuanced fashion than it does in something mm-hmm. like Lord of the Flies. Right. And we see that right away in, it, well, in this episode, Sawyer's character, the last one that we're talking about, Confidence Man. Yeah, precisely. Like, like, you get this backstory that makes you like him and he's suddenly likable, whereas he was like yeah. very hateable for the first yeah. five episodes. And same, episodes. And yeah. same I was Jen. I was so reluctant to to accept my coming around to Sawyer the first time I watched it, I was like, no, I still hate him. I still hate him. Like right. I secretly like, oh, I kind of like him. Yeah. I yeah. think I would have been similar to Kate in the sense of like, not that, well, not the love triangle aspect of her relationship with him, but like, I would, no I would thing. like him. I think like there would be parts of him that I would like, I mean, he'd be being a dick and she does give him a hard time, which is good. But, um, well, and he is, like again like Sawyer is a he's actually a perfect example and this and Kate saying to him no one's that evil she -hmm. really means it she literally means no one is that evil you're not that evil yeah and that doesn't mean that people can't do evil bad things because they can Mm -hmm. but no one's naturally going to just like see a woman not breathing and And be like nah there's just no way and so I think Sawyer is actually a perfect example of this is like Mm -hmm. he is a super complicated person Precisely because he does bad things. Mm-hmm. He's a con man. And yeah. we now know that for sure. Yeah. But he also is a human being who is that way for a reason. Yeah. And uh, may I just say, 
Kate figuring out that the letter was written by him by like the stamp. I know. I, I was like, hey, you got some skills that I like. You it's like imagine, <laughs> imagine this other life that like where Kate is like a stamp collector or whatever. <laughs> stamp and then we're like, the envelope has like whatever it is on it, and, and then she like figures out the timeline that a child wrote it. Also, like, wouldn't the handwriting be more anyway? Like, but whatever. like they used would, to they used to teach cursive they penmanship in school. They, they do not. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But like, it's just so funny that she's like, I thought about this and thought about this, and then I noticed on the back it says like Tennessee bourbon. It doesn't say Tennessee bourbon, but it's like <laughs> it, it was it was the U.S. bicentennial, right? And she's like, and then I knew that, it was, and it's like, okay, Kate, she's got a lot up her sleeve, <laughs> and I know she does actually have a lot up her sleeve. Because I've seen a couple more episodes. Seen, yeah. But like, I was like, how much do you know about Kate now, Sarah? I know a little bit, but I don't know. You've uh, already seen the whole Australia thing. I saw Australia, and I've seen actually now, and we haven't done this for this episode, but I've seen one more flashback to her. Um, okay, good. To some of her potential crimes, which I'll save. Potential for, crimes. Save for the next crimes. episode. And Kate, too. She's kind of like, Kate has done bad stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, she's, she's not a bad person. It's presented right away. Like, we know she's a... A felon as soon as she gets to the island and saeed how about okay how about this stuff with saeed being a torturer potentially right yeah. right i mean that was hard to watch obviously um i also just like love saeed's character and so far he's been so good that it's another one of these it's an opposite thing versus evil yeah it's the good people can do bad things um and i know that next episode we'll talk about because we next episode that comes up we get his backstory but we see this part of him torturing Sawyer and it's it's like Sawyer's like I don't believe you've ever tortured someone and he's like uh, I wish that was true and then all of a sudden he's like made these splints that go in between his fingernails and I'm like oh my god sight it's just so oh I can't think of like that is a pure torture method yeah it like made me cringe to watch I mean you know not to not to you know orientalize but if you were a member of the Republican Guard under Saddam Hussein you probably did some fucked up stuff. <laughs> sure. Well, like any mandated military service in any country yeah. in any yeah. period of time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. It's not going to be sunshine and rainbows. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there, I will say, so t- um, there is one and only one thing that the film American Sniper did correctly. <laughs> well, that's a sentence. <laughs> and that was the baby. And that was making the American sniper and the opposing sniper foils of each other and demonstrating that both are, they're the fucking same. Mm-hmm. Like that. I've never seen it, but I trust It's you. not a, it's not, I mean, whatever, it's fine. You can watch it if you want to have a little bit of a America rah-rah party for yourself. I don't know why you ever <laughs> I don't, don't want that. I don't want that. <laughs> but there's a, a, a good portion, shots- a, a good portion of it too is based like just Chris Kyle's entire like memoir or yeah. whatever it's based on is like literally bullshit. Like he made well, so much thing. shit up. <laughs> of course he did. And I think some of it might not even be intentional. Like I think when you're de- when you're um it's like a it's a perpetrator trauma kind of thing, which is always super complicated to talk about because obviously it's really hard to explain that you're delineating between explanations and excuses. Um so t- explaining Chris Kyle's perception of events is easy because obviously no matter whether you're on the other side experiencing bad shit or you're doing bad shit to people, you're going to have some trauma from that. And trauma makes you remember things incorrectly. Um, I'm just looking up the movie so I can make sure I get like characters and actors names right and stuff like that. Never seen American Sniper, but the cover makes me look like 
I don't want to see it. It just right. looks like something I could give an easy pass to. Well, and so in the movie, <laughs> well, you can, and it's because, and some of the acting work is really good. Like, I actually think it's, in a way, it's actually Bradley Cooper, like, kind of at his best. But, right. but so there's a couple of, sh- I, I went to see it because I was like, okay, you can't criticize anything unless you've seen it. Sure. <laughs> but I but I had a feeling I wasn't going to like it. So I went in maybe with an unfair bias. And I was shocked to find that they did give the Iraqi sniper that's presented as sort of like the antagonist of the film mm-hmm. some backstory. You see him with his family and right. you witness that his situation is exactly the same as Chris Kyle's situation, mm-hmm. except that he's in Iraq. Right. And so this is a, this is like, um, this is relevant to what we were talking about with, with Saeed, because no matter where you are, if you're getting conscripted into an army for your government's military, mm-hmm. you're going to be doing bad shit to other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's kind of like the natural state of the military and yeah. the point of its existence. Yeah. And so, um, 2004 too, like, uh, sorry not to interrupt, but like, yeah, this but it's is a big a- deal this is like another way that lost is being a little bit radical for the time. Yeah. Um, because, okay. So they are showing like shitty parts of Saeed's, um, uh, service and they like, probably that's what Americans wanted to see, but they're also showing like lots of good parts and human parts yeah. as well. And, um, and it's like depicted as an army that has like, like it's not depicted as like barbarian, you know what I mean? It's depicted as like their structure and there's yeah. like, and there's like very like smart, well-spoken individuals working there, which is like, maybe not necessarily like the 2004, I remember as a child, there was a lot of like horrible, uh, you know, like anti-Middle East rhetoric everywhere. Yeah. After as there still is. Yeah. And, and it would all, work yeah, and yeah. all, I'll, I'll be talking about that next episode. I'm sure. Yes. Cause we, yeah, have, um, we get, I have lots. We get actually, images of it yeah. well and let's also talk about the politics of how to write a character that you know is at risk of being stereotyped yeah, so this show dances that line it does all the time it really it walks it walks that line so carefully and i think it's important to acknowledge the form of how these characters are revealed to us because we were comfortable learning that kate a white woman character mm-hmm. was like pretty bad and potentially criminal right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And yet we are still able to love her. Mm -hmm. And the writers trusted by revealing the bad shit about her before revealing the good stuff. Yeah. They trusted that their audience would be able to fall in love with her. Right. They don't trust that we would be able to fall in love with Saeed if we knew he was a torturer in the first three episodes. For sure. And then then saw him be good later. It's the same with Mm -hmm. Sawyer. They trusted that we would be able to fall in love with Sawyer later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, sure. there's some, they're, they're same sort of, with and same with Jin and Sun. They're yeah, sort yeah. of trusting that we're going to be able to fall in love with them. And I think that that's a lot of, a lot of, um, there's this sort of bias of the like non-threatening Asian character. Right. Who like, isn't supposedly a threat to anyone else's masculinity, anyone else's blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and that's, you can see that in all sorts of movies, like even John Hughes movies, like, yeah. Asian characters are consistently like made silly or desexualized right. or they're or they're like samurais. There's no in between. Right, right. And so lost how it it is important and relevant the order in which we find out about each sure. person's good and bad side in sure. lost. Sure. It's probably why they started with Kate. Exactly. And yeah. it reveals something about the society that was the society of which the lost audience was made up. 
in right. 2004. Sure. Absolutely. And how the writers were perceiving it and reacting to it yeah. and making use of it in their characters. And even just playing it safe so that they would get picked up. Exactly. Stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's it's good that uh, we kind of ended that talking about uh, Said actually, because it's kind of lets me... Uh, Kind of lets me segue pretty easily because in in one of the episodes there, you know, Saeed's trying to triangulate the uh, the location of the, the signal, the the French oh, right. distress transmission. Seven or eight, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And it, that kind of got me thinking about one. Uh, number stations, which is kind of what the the signal is based on, which are uh, these shortwave radio stations that have um, a lot of them have been running for like decades at this point, and they just play kind of looped messages, and it's believed that they were um, a communication method for spies during the Cold War to uh, you know receive untraceable messages and codes that only they would know they'd write it down um on things called right. one-time pads that are right. um yeah. sometimes often edible <laughs> but the reason i bring that up is um uh, it kind of puts lost uh or at least this section of lost in kind of the mode of the eerie uh which kind of ties back to what i was talking about with uh surrealism and magic realism last episode where um kind of uh, Mark Fisher, uh, who was a uh, like a literary theorist who died a few years ago. He uh, just after he died, uh, had a book release called The Weird and the Eerie, where he talks about um, weird fiction and what he calls eerie fiction and at both those kind of genres of the uncanny. And Mm -hmm. the eerie is all about constituted by like a failure of absence or a failure of presence so something where there should be nothing or nothing where there should be something and uh, the coffin at the end of white rabbit's a good example of that as well um there's you know when he opens up the coffin you'd expect his dad's body to be there but it's empty so that's yeah which is still a big mystery yeah Um, so that it connects to what i was saying about uh how the surrealism kind of evaporates when we get an explanation on one side or the other, whether it's magical or scientific, you know, the eerie also mm-hmm. kind of dissipates. Uh, so right. I really. Well, related, related, related to the eerie is the, the Freudian uncanny, which I work with a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah. Um, Fisher actually talks a lot about that in the weird and the eerie. Let me, uh, well, it's, the, uh... it's important. And it, like the, the Freud, Sarah, for context, um, not not to, not to mansplain Freud to you, but like, I don't know how often <laughs> you go ahead and read Freud essays for Fonzies. I try not to, <laughs> but um, um, I don't I, know about his uncanny for, thing. So for, those, for those listening, um, I <coughs> low-key and accidentally am a Freud scholar. <laughs> and I don't know how that happened. And I don't know what happened in my life to get me here. Mm-hmm. But that's all. But all, here we are. But here we are. And this is what we, we uh, have to accept. It. And so one, one of his sort of really important uh, essays that and the reason that he comes up in film studies a lot, which might seem strange, is this 1915 essay, The uh, the Uncanny, which in which he talks about the German word is unheimlich, mm-hmm. uh, which is actually at its root 
related to the word Heimlich, which means like, homely. Like Heimlich r- maneuver? <laughs> <laughs> they were different, 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 different. things. Yeah. Um, no, and so it's, it's, the Heimlich is like all that's homely and belonging to the home. Mm-hmm. But what happened is, and what Freud traces in this essay is a, a sort of an um, etymological move where Heimlich goes from being like part of the home to being private to being hidden mm-hmm. to being unseen and then eventually collides with its opposite in terms of meaning and becomes unheimlich right which means should be hidden but is coming to light right or like sh- should be secret or you're What's not an example whatever of this like maybe in so an example or... is like uh that people will use a lot is like um the a scene a scene in a in a ghost movie mm-hmm. that's really suspenseful right. you know that something is wrong and something's going to happen that's right. a very like uncanny feeling right or so, certain forms of deja vu where you suddenly find yourself in a part of the city they, freud uses this as an example in the essay where you it seems so familiar but you mm-hmm. don't really know where you are mm-hmm. these are things that he uses as examples of the uncanny right and it's similar it's related to the eerie and the strange because it's a mechanism in fear that we don't really necessarily n- understand. Right. Um, and I think Lost plays with it a lot. And I wouldn't have had this language for it when I was watching Lost mm-hmm. at like 12. Right. But but if now did, be I see scary. it all the time. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the parts of Lost that I was drawn to are all the sort of spookiest parts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, and it's, and it's, and these transceiver stations are not, they're not, they're eerie and they're not uncanny necessarily, but they're, but there's something about them that remains in this realm of like, what the hell? Yeah, for sure. That's yeah. one of the first, first spooky things is that signal, I yeah. think. And then of course the dad, like the image of the dad yeah. walking around. And had no, and him being not in the coffin. That's an uncanny moment. Where yeah. It's like, what yeah, the absolutely. Hell? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so here, here's from like the introduction of Fisher's book this is what he says about the unheimlich. Uh, there's certainly something that the weird, the eerie and the unheimlich share. They're all affects, but they're also modes, modes of perception. Ultimately, uh, perhaps the most important difference between the unheimlich on the one hand and the weird and the eerie on the other is their treatment of the strange. Uh, Freud's unheimlich is about the strange within the familiar, the strangely familiar, the familiar as strange about the way in which the domestic world does not coincide with itself. All of the ambivalences of Freud's psychoanalysis are caught up in this concept. Is it about making the familiar or the familial strange? Or is it about returning the strange to the familiar, the familial? Uh, Here we can appreciate the double move inherent to Freudian psychoanalysis. First of all, there's estrangement of many of the common notions about the family, but this is accompanied by a compensatory move whereby the outside becomes legible in terms of a modernist family drama. So it, like I was saying about surrealism previously, it, you know, kind of takes the familiar and makes it unfamiliar in a lot of ways. It's sneaking or in vice versa. this notion to like the ABC uh, viewer of 2000. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, like you thought this was a soap, but we're but putting, it's yeah. putting it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Which, which in itself is uncanny. You can talk about here. This is actually interesting too. We could talk about how the whole structure of lost is rendered uncanny precisely because it does, it is so familiar and so cheesy and so, you know, 
Are you trying to close the window because of those alarms? I am just going <laughs> to ignore it. How bad are the sirens, Jonathan? Well, we're I mean, in I can hear them, but pretty much every podcast I've ever listened to has sirens in Especially the background at some point if it's right recorded now. in someone's home in a yeah. large city. It really so. sets the gives us some i think they're gone now too anyway you can edit that part out sorry <laughs> well, no that's okay so all it, it wasn't that interesting i thought it's just like the whole structure of lost is rendered somewhat uncanny because it is so familiar and so formulaic mm-hmm. in so many ways yeah and cheesy and campy and then all of a sudden bam there's this thing that's right. like actually creepy right and so it the the entire show itself is in some way yeah. related to the eerie and the strange and the uncanny. Oh, man. Yeah, and well, that actually, right. it, it's it's funny that you say that actually because this other podcast that I listened to, um, Horror Vanguard, which Aaron you would love, um, and John, one of the hosts, shared our last episode on his Twitter account, which is pretty <gasps> no cool. Way. But um, they're they haven't they do a thing called the. Um, Oh, I can't remember what what it's called, but they do like readings of like bits of theory that you know relate to like horror or the uncanny or the gothic or that kind of thing. John's a gothic uh, studies scholar. Oh, um, interesting. And yeah, and he um, the next episode that they're doing is about the introduction to a book from the early 20th century that was a collection of kind of ghost stories that was collected by this guy christopher st john sprig and that was the pseudonym kind of the pen name of this marxist uh literary critic who actually died in the spanish civil war um and he it was just you know a regular old collection of it was the last thing he published um just a regular collection of uh you know ghost stories and it was called uncanny tales and hmm. the introduction he talks about how uncanny stories are kind of the kind of kind of operate in their in their best register or the most effective when it, they're written in a really matter of fact kind of familiar way where you know everything feels comfortable familiar and then you know the the uncanny or like the the supernatural or whatever kind of like burst the like burst through the mm-hmm. protective normalcy of it and you know kind of shatters that Mm-hmm. It's what well, makes you feel the most uneasy. Yeah, as it's important to, I misspoke earlier. I think I said that it was 1915, but The Uncanny is 1919, which is important because it's after the First World War, which mm, yes. was, of course, one of these things that did burst through everyday life and change the fabric of society in a way that no one expected. And so I think Freud was thinking in that mode a little bit. Uh, There's also the character coming up soon, and like I won't get too much into it, but I've met... At this point in my personal viewing, I've, I've just met Danielle. Oh, okay. Oh, great, and we'll, great. And we'll talk about that next week, but I want to talk about spooky characters. Oh, that that yeah, means I have to brush up on my Rousseau as well. And that oh, actress yeah. does yeah. unreal work oh, in that show. I yeah. love her so, so much. Good. This is a little teaser for next one because I don't want to spoil <laughs> too much, but yeah, like there's some parts of the show that I'm like, uh, like, I don't know why I'm such a baby because I also, now that I think about it, as a kid, like re- liked really weird shit, yeah, and was like a child like, <laughs> reading Edgar Allan Poe. I like, thought that was cool. You know what I mean? Like, not that that's scary to us now, but as no, a but it child. is. Um, and so, like, I I was like really into like I remember reading Stepford Wives really young, and like and like lit like in terms of literary like yeah, 
I wasn't that scared, but for film, for some reason, whatever, I've always been like, I can't do it, but maybe I, it's a different mode. Uh, yeah, days. for sure. And like, Pretty maybe radically. I can do it, but I never gave myself a chance as a kid. Like I was always like, Oh, I'm too scared. I can't do it. Um, but I do find myself already being like, this is spooky. Like I'm sitting on the couch <laughs> with Greg, a little like, bit anxious, just being like, Oh, and Danielle sort of mm-hmm. pressed on that spook button for you. Yeah. Like she's spooky looking. Yeah, she is. in general, like they like they cast someone who's very good at not blinking, and, and that's she's very <laughs> and she's also extremely striking. Like yes. she's a striking person. Too. Yes, yeah. And what like she's I beautiful, think, but she's spooky. Well, and her beauty is doing a lot of work there. I think because we have a st- we have this idea of beautiful women. They're like non threatening in some way or extremely threatening. There's no in between with very beautiful women. That's right. why you have the ingenue or the femme fatale. There's no like in between in right. literary tropes usually. Right. But Danielle, like everything else in Lost, exists somewhere in between where you sense that she, like, I mean, she's obviously, like, survived on the island alone for how many years. She's a symbol of hope. Yeah. So she's obviously, like, they know that there's potential for them to survive for upwards of 16 years on the fucking island. (laughs) But they also, but she's scary and dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into it, but yes. And not in, like, a sexy film noir way. She's just scary. She's just scary. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, and like that to me is hinting more towards the like Saeed torturing Sawyer is hard to watch because you can imagine the pain, not because it's necessarily like but it's, it's not, not spooky, it's not it's horror, scary, it's scary. But like then like there are just different elements of the and I've met Ethan and pfft, Ethan's also let's talk about how scary Ethan is. Yeah, and like again, <laughs> this is all like uh, jumping ahead, but yeah, they've cast some spooky people to play the the others um so anyway yeah the guy the guy who plays ethan uh there's a movie that came out a few years ago that uh i really like uh it's called another earth it's kind of like yeah yeah it's great like the the ending is one of my favorite endings like in the past like x number of years but the guy who plays ethan is one of the main characters in that and like (laughs) watching it like he's so intense as ethan that like i can't had a hard time separating him from the character of ethan while i was watching another earth right right but he's so good and like well, and Another Earth is also another example of really good, quiet sci-fi that slips back and forth between surrealism and not surrealism, kind of. It's but very I, uncanny. It's very uncanny. I love that movie. And I also love, this is totally wildly off topic, but I love Britt Marling's career. Um, yeah, Britt Marling's great. This is actually really important and super relevant to what we were just saying, because Britt Marling has been stuck in this ingenue category for most of her, was stuck in that category for most of her young life as an mm-hmm. actor. And because she's blonde and very beautiful. And if, if if you don't know who she is, just like if you're listening, look her up and you'll know because she's kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. But you'll know her mostly from The OA, which is her most recent right. project. Yes, that's how I know her. But Britt Marley, The OA, great like, show. I know. I love that show. Was getting cast as like the hot cheerleader when she was younger. Mm-hmm. And she just got fed up with it because who she is as a person is this like spooky Right. sci-fi lover who just like wants to write these sort of quietly weird stories right and um i actually would so comfortably put something like another earth and lost in the same kind of category even though they're oh, absolutely I, they're stylistically quite kind of wildly different but they feel the same to me um Eth- the guy that plays ethan william mapother Mapo- Mapo- Ma- i'm Ma- sure maple thor maple thor whoa 
That's it. <laughs> so wrong. You know what? You're just you're, you're a tastemaker. I'm trying, but anyway, uh, Tom Cruise's cousin. Yeah, that's right. Weird. This is I didn't know that. Weird Actually, yeah, Tom Cruise's brother. No, no, cousin. cousin. Yeah, one of his. Yeah, <laughs> cousin. Yeah, yeah. I remember there, this a, tidbit now yeah. that you've said it. Yeah, uh, Tom Cruise's last name is also. I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> is it Maplethorpe? Tom, yes, Tom it Cruise, is. just another another person who his entire existence is just uncanny. Tom Cruise, Maplethorpe, Maplethorpe, the fifth, Maplethorpe, the fourth, Maplethorpe. You know what? I don't know. You see what I mean? It's not Maplethorpe. No, it's like it's like Maplethor. Just Mapother. That's why I said Mapother. I'm sure I'm wrong. Maplethor. Who cares? It's probably like Mapother. Yes, I'm getting it wrong. Let's ask Tom Cruise. Anyway, other cousins, which like now that you know it, you can't unsee it. Like I see a picture of the two of them side, but you can see the family resemblance. I mean, Ethan didn't get the the. Uh, look for getting cast in um, my favorite movie of all time, Top Gun. Top but, Gun. <laughs> but I'm so glad that. Sarah introduced me to Top Gun several no, years I ago, can't. and I'm forever yes, grateful. I, listen, I'm an actor, so I cannot say anything bad about other actors on this podcast, but we need to move on from this topic because I will <laughs> if we keep talking. I'm, it's fine. I'm not actually a big Tom Cruise fan. I'm just a huge Top Gun fan. Yes, and that's totally yeah. I mean, I love, I mean, I love like 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 Magnolia is one of my favorite movies. Right. And he's he's in that. He's yeah. big you you have to cut this out of the podcast. Jonathan, what I'm about to say, this is just for yeah, us. Sure. Tom Cruise is <laughs> But I love that movie <laughs> so much. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, we should probably start wrapping up, I guess. Um mm-hmm. we have a lot an hour I think, and a half. for a recording. Yeah. Um, Closing thoughts, I guess. We, yeah, before we end, like, uh, you know, the usual mysteries, questions, mm-hmm. theories, you know, any any wild allegations or speculations that you might have. My wild allegation comes from a couple episodes when we ahead when we meet Danielle, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because I'm been Zorro, doing that Zorro. this whole time. Zorro, stop. Uh, it wouldn't yeah. be a podcast without Zorro scratching. Scratching. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, my my wild like okay we all know that time is a thing time is a theme time is a issue on the island yeah um but some like weird theories about the timeline getting warped with the uh, with the other stranded crew okay um and like possibly overlapping even though it's 16 years later mm, interesting so, like, interesting I, I, like i i don't quite know i don't have to figure out what those details are in my head but i I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple crazy time warps soon. Hmm. Um, but I don't know. That's just like a, an idea that's coming into my head that like I have the I'm like, I'm going to make my ideas even crazier so that I can get ahead of. <laughs> get ahead of <laughs> yeah, yeah um, go go wild. Yeah. Time warps. But gosh right now i don't know i guess one of the biggest mysteries that came up during the show was uh the the dad not being in the coffin um and uh any theories on that "Mm." well he sees his dad right so like part of the magic part we want to think like maybe the island brought him back to life or something i mean it it john Locke can walk now so we know it has like life giving or not life restorative giving, like kind restorative of powers powers yeah. um 
So I don't know, though. I don't think I actually do believe that he's alive again, necessarily. But it is weird that he's not there. Like, I haven't actually thought about that one as much. Um, but it's one of the obvious outstanding issues. Um, during one of these episodes, Saeed gets smacked on the back of the head. Yeah. And we don't know who did it. And we know it's not Sawyer because of his alibi. Well, then John Locke says, like, we well, could have done a short, <laughs> uh, delayed fuse with the cigarette or whatever. And then it, like, cuts to the <laughs> Anyone know- who watches TV would know how to do that. Yeah, I'm like, um, okay, I would not have thought of that. Um, so we want to know, like, I, I think we're starting to, even though I, I skipped ahead, but we are, are already starting to get glimpses that there are other people on the island mm-hmm. because they, like, can't explain what happened to Saeed when he's trying to yeah, triangulate exactly. the signal. Um, those are my biggest ones right now. I'll leave it there. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can follow us on the socials. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Aaron Ann underscore Mick. And don't follow me on Twitter because there's no point. Don't do it. We'll find you. <laughs> um, I am on Instagram and TikTok as sarah.e.blackmore. And I'm I'm get ratified on whatever Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd. Um, I don't know. What's Letterboxd? Uh, Letterboxd is a movie website where you keep track of movies that you watch so if you want to see what movies i've been watching oh you didn't know about letterboxd no well you guys aren't it's it's fun go go look at all the shit i the shit i watch and i I never write reviews on them but i you know I like to give you star ratings. So. Sorry, Aaron and I are having the side conversation where my proof that I'm not a film person is that no. I just watched The Matrix for the first but time. But listen, I want to know what you thought of it. The uh, Matrix is like a legendary movie. No, I, I had see, I, I'll be honest. I think I had seen it when it first came out when I was like eight or nine. I, or and then, I, But then I'm not sure if I only saw clips of it. Okay. Loved it. Loved The Matrix. It's a great movie. I want to go with Morpheus for Halloween this year. Yes. Le- I Leah and I have been meaning to rewatch it actually. And in in the in the spirit of uh, Keanu Reeves, I watched uh, the new Bill and Ted mm, a few days I've ago or last week or whatever. I the, the originals were two of like alongside when I was eight, alongside of Terminator Two. My other favorite movie was Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, right. The, the new one <laughs> oh, is great. <laughs> the new one is great. It's hilarious. It's stupid. It's really heartwarming. It made me tear up twice. And I will go to the grave uh, insisting that it's about how communism will save the world. I'm not even joking about that. (laughs) Of course you're not joking. We know you never joke about communism. Um, I love Keanu Reeves. Do people not like him? I like him. Uh, I I feel like people don't give him enough credit. It's not that they dislike him. They just write him off as, you know, the stupid. I can see that, but I do. I like him a lot. And I, on the, no, I'm not going to go there. Anyways, I love Keanu Reeves. I really do. Yeah. (laughs) I also, I also love Carrie Ann Moss and I feel like Mm. she's Mm -hmm. maybe fallen off the map slightly, but I really love her. Mm -hmm. She didn't deserve that. She deserves (laughs) to be still really, really famous right now. (laughs) Yeah, so at Get Ratified on all the things and johnkennedy.net. Go watch the new Bill and Ted. Um, That's that's all I've got. Cool. Go to a drive-in movie if you can, where you are. We're safe and socially distanced. Yeah. 
Okay. Stay frosty. Right, thanks, guys. Stay frosty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're, we're using that for that, the rest of the that, podcast now. That's our new slogan. I had a stay one frosty. T- sorry, one time I got rejected for a job, and in the email he said, stay frosty. <laughs> and I, just, like, I still think it's like the coolest way to sign off an email ever. That's incredible. Yeah. All right. <laughs> stay frosty, anyway, everyone. Stay frosty, stay frosty, kids. Bye. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control.